AM. American Majority. Days of Revolution is a podcast series brought to you by AmericanMajority.org. This is Ned Ryan, and welcome to Episode 10, The Currency Act of 1764. Now, last week, I talked about the Sugar Act of 1764, which was the first in a series of acts passed by the British Parliament to raise revenue from the American colonies. This week, I want to cover the Currency Act, which was passed in 1764 as well. Now, we saw last week that when Parliament arbitrarily altered the sugar and molasses market in the New World, the entire New England economy was affected, and discontent began to spread. With the Currency Act, we will see again that the economic shocks had long-lasting effects on the American colonists' view of their mother country, which reminds us again of the power that economics has over the sentiment of an entire population. The Currency Act was actually not a new idea. It was an expansion of an older act under the same name, which was first passed in 1751. Now, go back to 1751 for a moment and think about what was happening in the colonies at the time. As always seemed to be the case during most of the 18th century, war with France was only a gunshot away. In this case, the French and Indian War was set to begin three years later, but the colonists had already heard rumblings of war. They knew the impact that a North American conflict would have on commerce, and so they prepared to enter a wartime economy. The legislatures of the New England colonies issued paper currency called bills of credit to help them pay the expenses of war, and the paper money was first used to pay soldiers and militia, but was then expanded to pay taxes and even made its way into private commerce. The problems, however, began when the colonies overprinted this currency, and the colonial money became inflated and devalued. Strange how that works, and yet we never seem to learn our lesson. But I digress. When the New England colonies paid their taxes to the crown, they largely paid with this devalued paper currency. The problem was that since the paper money was inflated, or devalued, there was no guarantee that the money was backed up with anything of real intrinsic value. In England, a banknote was a representation of a pound sterling, hard, solid metal coins that had intrinsic value. In the colonies, though, bills of credit were backed by anticipated tax collections. So in essence, the colonies were paying their soldiers and their debts to the crown with money that they hoped to have, but did not yet possess. It didn't take long for Parliament to realize that they were taking in less revenue than they thought they were, and to protect themselves, they passed the First Currency Act in response. Passed in 1751, the First Currency Act prohibited the further printing of paper money by the New England colonies. Bills of credit that were already in circulation were allowed to be used to pay taxes to Britain, but could not be used in private commerce. This act went largely unnoticed by the colonies, and the French and Indian War began three years later, distracting the New England colonies and Parliament from economic matters, but only temporarily. Following the war, however, and as I have mentioned in previous episodes, the British fiscal situation was dire. Because of the financial burden of the war, the British national debt nearly doubled over the course of 10 years. While passing acts to raise revenue, such as the Sugar Act and the soon-to-be-passed Stamp Act, the British Parliament under Prime Minister George Grenville also periodically passed acts to stem the loss of revenue, and the 1764 Currency Act was a prime example. The new version of the Currency Act expanded the scope of the 1751 Act, applying it to all of the North American colonies. It prohibited them from issuing any new paper currency, 
and it set a deadline by which the colonies would have to take all of the existing paper currency out of circulation. This placed a strain on civilians involved in commerce, basically meaning all of them, as they were all involved in the economy in some way or another. They had enjoyed paying off their debts cheaply with paper currency, but that form of payment was quickly retired and with little advance warning. The act also affected the colonial governments. Parliament would no longer accept paper money from the colonies as payment for debts, and would not allow the colonies to pay British soldiers or colonial militia in paper currency. This was a dramatic change from the previous decades. Many of the colonies, New York particularly, had been issuing paper currency exactly because it made it easier for them to pay soldiers. But now that paper money was outlawed, they were forced to readjust. The effects of the Currency Act were felt strongly across the, across the colonies as the general money supply quickly dropped. Historians note that colonists had come to America centuries before hoping to find massive stores of gold and silver, as the Spanish had done in Central America. Had this actually happened, there would have been no need for paper currency in the first place. But the fact of the matter was that there was a lack of naturally occurring precious metals in North America, making a purely coin-based currency unsustainable as the population grew. In addition, the trade deficit between the colonies and Britain only compounded the problem. The commercial relationship between the colonies and England was set up so that the colonies sold cheap raw materials to British industry, and British merchants sold more expensive manufactured products back to the colonists. This trade monopoly, operating on a planned deficit, systematically sucked money out of North America and transferred it to Europe. The colonies were somewhat at a loss as how to react to the act. Pennsylvania, whose legislature was somewhat disenchanted with Benjamin Franklin at the time, sent him to Britain to lobby Parliament for the Currency Act's repeal. The response of the other colonies, where there were responses, was similar. Violence, which would become a more commonplace reaction to acts of Parliament the following year, was as yet almost non-existent. Instead, the colonies responded the only way they knew how by appealing to the king for mercy. After a long string of appeals and lobbying, the Currency Act was reformed nine years later. The colonies were once again allowed to issue paper money, but only for use in the payment of public debts, such as taxes or compensation of soldiers. It was still not allowed in commercial transactions or for the payment of private debts. This was a noteworthy reversal of monetary policy, but by 1773, when this reform was passed, the colonies had already become substantially disenfranchised from Britain. Now, I devoted an entire episode to the Currency Act because I want to stress that its legacy is just as important as that of any other post-French and Indian War resolution. First, according to the historian Jack Sawson, the Currency Act was an exercise of British power more than anything else. Parliament intended to raise revenue with it, to be sure, but for the first time, the British authorities sought to assert its sovereignty over all of the American colonies simultaneously. By outlawing paper money, the Currency Act affected commerce for virtually the entire colonial population. Compare that to the Proclamation Act, which affected only the colonists moving westward onto the frontier, or the Sugar Act, which affected primarily only the New England sector of the merchant economy. The 1764 Currency Act marked the first comprehensive assertion of British sovereignty over the colonies, beginning a decade-long era of British posturing and grandstanding. The trend did not go unnoticed by the colonists. According to historians Jack Green and Richard Jellison, 
The Currency Act convinced the colonists that they knew better than the British Parliament how to legislate for themselves. This idea, when it became widespread among all of the colonies, was key. The more colonists thought of themselves as an entity losing touch with Britain, the bolder the colonists became. There were only a few logical steps between the colonists believing that they knew how to best legislate for themselves and believing that they should be the only ones legislating for themselves. Another important aspect of the Act's legacy was its longevity. Even at the meeting of the First Continental Congress 10 years after the passage of the law, the representatives remembered and reviled the Currency Act. I'll save the detailed talk about the Continental Congress for a later podcast, but I want to note that the Congress classified the Currency Act among seven of the acts of Parliament labeled subversive to American rights. The Continental Congress was not fooled by the British claims of legitimacy for the Currency Act and others like it. Rather, in the journals of the Continental Congress, the Currency Act is classified as one of the acts which impose duties for the purpose of raising revenue in America. The Continental Congress knew that the colonies were being cashed in to pay the debt for Britain's war, and they refused to support such policies. In 1774, they had less concern for the supposedly threatened welfare of Britain than for their own individual and colonial tax burden. And this was a crucial contrast to the colonial attitude in the era before the French and Indian War. Again, the First Continental Congress met 10 years after the passage of the Currency Act of 1764. I stress this because I don't want you to think that I'm saying the colonial reaction to the Currency Act was immediately hostile. In fact, it was quite benign in the years closely following its passage, as I stated earlier. Furthermore, for all of their reactionary rhetoric, the Continental Congress's reaction was also quite tame in comparison to the violent, chaotic events we usually associate with the American Revolution. The three prescriptions included in the journals of the Continental Congress are a non-importation agreement against Britain, an address written to the people of Great Britain, and an appeal to the king. Again, when faced with a restriction of their economic freedom and prosperity, the colonists did what they knew how to do best, and they appealed to the king for mercy. The Currency Act masqueraded as a measure to maintain the fiscal solvency of the British government by insisting on payments in legitimate coined currency. However, it was received in the colonies as a flagrant exercise of British sovereignty for sovereignty's sake, and the cries of tyranny grew progressively louder. The colonists' assessment of the act reflected the growing sentiment that the American colonies were viewed as second-class citizens of the British Empire, existing merely to finance the high living of the British aristocrats passing the very acts and regulations governing them. As I stated in an earlier podcast, the colonies had existed semi-autonomously for more than a century, while still considering themselves British subjects. The bad blood with the crown began when they felt that their local representation and limited self-governance were being stifled by an overextension of royal prerogative. Parliament's assertion of sovereignty had just begun, however, and the colonists had only started taking notice of their disappearing liberty. As the transition into a royally managed, non-representative, trans-oceanic monarchy continued, the colonists began looking longingly to their days of self-governance and non-interference, considering radical action more permissible with the passage of each successive act, and that radical action would manifest itself in physical violence and serious consideration of colonial independence. Days of Revolution is a podcast series brought to you by AmericanMajority.org and written by Ned Ryan and Eric Josephson and recorded by Ned Ryan. 
If you enjoy this podcast on American history, be sure to check out the History of the Constitutional Convention by Ned Ryan at AmericanMajority.org or on iTunes. <laughs>